This practice that we're doing here, walking this path of awakening, as you now know, is a very roller coaster ride. It's a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And one way we can come to understand it is that it's really the development of certain mental qualities or attributes in the beginning of the retreat or in the beginning of practice some amount of confusion and restlessness and hindrances in the mind that keep us from really knowing what's going on to clearly. And as we practice a little and a little more throughout these weeks and months, begin to get a little more clarity and moments of tranquility or calmness or insight or understanding. One way of understanding the practice is through what are called the five controlling faculties of the mind, their development through the course of practice. The first that I want to speak about tonight, I want to speak about them individually and how they relate to one another. And the first is sadha, or usually translated as faith or confidence. The second is virya, which is effort or energy. The third is mindfulness, which we all know is observing power of mind. Fourth is samadhi or concentration, one-pointedness of mind. And the fifth is wisdom, panya, understanding or knowing. These five factors, five factors of mind, five faculties of the mind, are developed as we try to observe meditation objects. And they have between them a cause and effect relationship. Being in practice for some weeks and months now, we can sometimes lose sight of the broader scope of what we're doing here. We get pretty caught up in our day's drama and sometimes lose sight of the fact that, yes, over the course of three months, Some of these factors have been developed, even though not as much as we'd like. I want to talk about one suggestion offered in the Path of Purification, the Vasudhimaga, on how to develop and how to bring these five qualities of mind to precise and mature functioning. And the Rizudhimaga lists nine ways in which to do that. So I'm going to be talking about the five faculties and the nine ways to develop 
and enhance and mature them. In this retreat setting, there are established here special conditions for this work that we're doing. And in fact, having suitable conditions is one of the ways to enhance the development of these factors. The first necessary suitability is having a place that's secluded from our normal activity, where it's quiet, where we can be alone and be with ourselves. Also a place where we can get what we need while we're practicing. In the olden days, it was where monks could get their requisites, where they could have a town nearby, and they could go on alms round to get food. And if there was a tree, that was enough. Thirdly, we need to understand what is right speech in this situation. And for yogis in retreat, we really should understand that Right speech is noble silence here. And what is noble silence? It's really speaking only that which is necessary for your practice. And that's pretty limited to speak with your teacher, to talk about your practice, to ask questions, to have minimum contact with the office just for the few things you need not to read and not to write unnecessarily. Talking has a tremendously restlessness-izing effect on the mind. I would go to my interviews in Burma sometimes, and I would say, ah, da, 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 rising, falling is this, lifting, moving, placing is that, and there's some restlessness. And before I could say anything else, Sayada would say, you shouldn't talk so much. As if he knew that, and he did, (laughs) every time the mind is really stirred up, you might look to see what you've been talking about and to whom, or what you've been hearing from someone else. Speech needs to be suitable for the development of these mental factors. Being with the suitable people. Here we're really lucky. We have a hundred of us or so that are supporting each other in practice. We have some Kalyanamitas or spiritual guides and we have a staff that values the work that we do. It's really supportive and encouraging and inspiring to have suitable people around when you're practicing. Fifthly, have suitable food. We should understand that suitable food isn't really everything we want when we want it, but it's more what we need just to get by. Sixth is having suitable weather. If we could call up the weathermen, we could order what we want, but that's not what it's meant. 
It's meant taking care of yourself in whatever weather you're in so that you're not too hot, not too cold, can stay dry in whatever conditions. And seventh is practicing in the suitable posture. Primarily it's the sitting posture and the walking, but also to recognize that we really should try to be mindful in all of our postures, when we're lying down, when we're standing, when we're waiting in line. Whatever posture we're in can be used to develop these factors of mind. Regarding having a suitable place where you can find seclusion, quiet, and get your minimum needs, in the old days it is said that when monks would wander around from place to place looking for a place to practice in practicing, when they got to a place that seemed quite reasonable where they wanted to try to practice, they would sit and walk and meditate for three days. If nothing special happened in three days, they'd move on, find another spot that seemed like a place where they could practice, practice for three days, and if they didn't get any special insight in that time, wasn't suitable place. <sighs> well, I'm glad you're all still here. <laughs> <laughs> when, there, when these seven suitabilities are met, when we're with the people and in the place and have the conditions necessary to support us, we can have an understanding and have faith in the fact that all the conditions are present to practice. And that arousal of faith or confidence in the conditions, is real important. We can have confidence that we're in a supportive group. We can have confidence in the teachers, have confidence in the teaching. And we can have confidence in ourself that we have what's needed as far as external things. And this sadha, or confidence, faith, is the first factor or the first faculty of mind that I want to talk about. It's usually translated, sadha is usually translated as faith. But we should understand that we're not talking about belief or opinion or dogma or principle or anything like that. We're really talking about having a confidence that is based on, or it's born of, a conviction based on our personal experience. It isn't having theoretical knowledge that you believe. This is not faith. But it's having some sense within you, some intuitive, personal understanding of practice, confidence in the practice. Faith has the nature of self-clarification in your spiritual objective, so that when you have faith, it's as if your spiritual compass is pointing in the direction that you know you need to go. So the characteristic of such confidence is having trust 
or deep conviction in what it is you're doing, who it is you're doing it with. There is an element to faith and an element of devotion being devoted to, here in this country, not so much to your teacher, but being devoted to your path, whatever, however you conceive that. And to be devoted to something really means to be concentrated, to pursue something with a very concentrated, determined mind. The way faith or confidence functions, there are two aspects. The first is to clarify. Confidence or faith serves to clarify and to settle some of the initial disturbances of mind that might prevent you from practice, from actually getting on with it. And when the mind has this initial clarity, it's not fogged up. There's not the doubt and bewilderment in the mind from lack of confidence or faith. The mind can become quite steady just from faith, quite translucent, quite lucid actually, in understanding and knowing what its path is. The second function of confidence is to serve as a basis for sustaining your interest. Without faith, your interest won't stay very long on what it is you want to or need to do. When you have this basis for sustaining your interest, the mind can become very resolute and determined in its pursuit of its spiritual objective. And as such, we can say that faith or confidence is really the foundation for all of our endeavor on the path. We should understand that faith or confidence isn't the isn't blind faith and it isn't the cocky arrogance of book knowledge. Really it's an intuitive understanding of or appreciation for your path or your teacher or your teaching. But it needs to be tested. We really can't or should not blindly accept anything, whether it's from some famous teacher or some well-known or ancient book. We really have to test what we put our faith in, the teacher and the teaching. So that we really need a spirit of inquiry and investigation. I was in Burma, after I'd been in Burma for some, a couple of years, two or three years, one Burmese Sayadaw who had been to America for three months on the West Coast, he returned to Burma and he'd heard that I was in this monastery in Burma. So he came to that monastery and he wanted to see me. He couldn't speak much English, I couldn't speak much Burmese, but we could get by with a translator that couldn't do much of either one. <laughs> and we were conversing about life in America and life in Burma, 
And so he asked me, well, how long have you been in Burma? And I said, oh, about three years. And he was very surprised because usually you can only stay three to six months or something, not very long. So he said, three years? He says, you must have tremendous faith to stay and practice that long. And I said, well, not always. I said, sometimes I don't seem to have any faith. And he said, good, good. He said, that's even better. (laughs) He said, because when you're in practice and your faith is gone and you just don't feel it and there's no reason to be practicing and yet you keep practicing, he says, you really test your faith and it really gets tempered in the fire of practice. So if at times you find yourself without any faith or any reason to keep going, good, keep going. You're really developing what needs to be developed. But we should understand that faith is not, or the arising of faith or the development of faith, is not the end of the path. It's not sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not the end. What we need to do is take that faith, or with that faith, faith, arouse in ourselves some sense of urgency that we need to get on with practice and actually do what needs to be done, rather than just have faith that it needs to be done and it can be done or it should be done. We need to actually do it. And to do that, we need to work in our practice very carefully being very meticulous and precise in our application of effort. One way to do that, one way to arouse that sense of urgency, the sense of it being necessary to practice, is to, a couple of things, as I talked about before, is to reflect on the fact that anything you now have or own or do or are will soon cease, and it's gone. And what have you got left? When we practice, we're actually developing qualities of mind and understanding which are far more substantial than anything we can own, any physical or material possession that we can get, or anything that we can become, any being or any title or role that we can become. In Burma, the way they talk about developing care and precision and meticulousness in your practice is they say you should act like a deaf, dumb, blind, sick person. That means to be so blind that you don't see in what's going on around you, where you're not looking around to see what's happening. Acting as if you're deaf and not hearing anything that's being said around you or that's unnecessary to listen to. Not speaking or not being able to speak other than is absolutely necessary. And being like a person who's ill and moves very carefully, 
so that all of your steps, all of your movements are very careful and precise. You know how painful it is when you're sick to hear people making a lot of noise? It's really very uncomfortable. And if we all were that careful with our behavior, it would support the development of faith, energy, mindfulness, and these other mental factors. By being careful with our practice, we really call upon and develop the second mental factor of wiriya, or energy, effort. When we have faith in the practice, we have faith in ourselves, the teacher, and the teaching, it is the cause for the arising of effort or energy to fulfill that practice. And one way of doing that is to persevere in following the instructions and really to be as continuous as possible throughout the formal sitting, formal walking, and the general activities of the day. The simile is given of trying to start a fire by rubbing two sticks together. If you rub the sticks for a few minutes and then stop, what heat you've generated dissipates. You have to start over. You rub the sticks again for a few minutes, you get a little tired and stop and rest, and you lose your momentum. It takes persistence, extreme continuity of rubbing the sticks together to generate the heat that's going to start the fire. The same in meditation practice. We need to be so continuous in our efforts to note every arising object that we can generate the heat that will banish the defilements, the hindrances. We need to burn up the hindrances with the heat of mindfulness. Or it's like turning an electric generator. You have to turn it at a certain frequency before you're going to generate any electricity. If you only turn it at half speed, no electricity. It needs to be going at full speed. The same with mindfulness. To generate the momentum that's going to carry your practice and develop some concentration and wisdom needs to be full speed or full continuity of mindfulness. When we can do that, when we can begin to observe primary and secondary objects throughout formal practice and general activities, we begin to see what's going on in our body and our mind. And this is mindfulness, the ability to observe what's actually happening, not just by thinking about it, but to actually feel the sensations of rising, falling, lifting, moving, placing, and the qualities of mind that come. What is it that we observe? as we sit here day after day. All of you know that we're observing the body and the mind, and a lot of unpleasantness of both. When painful feelings come to the body, 
or when painful emotions or painful mental states come, it really requires that we boost our energy, that we really meet the challenge of pain to our mindfulness. When pain comes, we don't like it. Let's face it. We don't want to look at it. It's natural. We've been We've had a lifetime of conditioning of avoiding pain. And so the mind turns away and doesn't observe it. But what we're doing here is trying to develop energy and the ability to observe whatever comes so that when painful feelings in the body or painful feelings in the mind come, we shouldn't shrink back. We should really turn to face it and really confront it with our ability to just observe it with our bare attention. And in that sense, the fourth way of developing energy, mindfulness, based on our faith, is in the text it's given one way, but I want to modify it a little bit. It says that the yogi should have complete disregard for their body or their life Unfortunately, most of us do that quite a lot, not so skillfully. So I'd like to modify that a little bit and to rather suggest that we not be afraid of the experience of pain in the body. Not to disregard the pain or to deny it or to just try to I don't know just what, but to try to bear it unknowingly, but rather not to be afraid of it, not to run away from it, to really look at it. I, being conditioned in America and having typical male, American male stuff, I guess, when I went to Burma, I thought, well, the more pain, the better. And that means good practice. I was really deluded. After some months of practice, I was going and I was reporting to Sayadaw every day and I was, every day I would go in, I would tell him I had this horrible pain and I would just sit with this unbelievable screeching pain for hours and hours every day. And he would listen and he'd say, yeah, well, you, you have to note whatever arises and, you know, done it and persevere. Okay, okay, I was just sitting and sitting in excruciating pain all the time. One day I went in and he really surprised me. I gave my report, standard pain report, and he said to me, you know why you have so much pain? I said, no, tell me. He said, you sit too long. (laughs) He said, you sit too long. That's why you have so much pain. He said, you don't have to sit more than an hour. I was thinking, oh, I got to sit three, four, five hours. Come on, come on. No pain. Somehow try it again. That's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to be mindful. (laughs) Observe what's happening. Don't try to make things happen. So he told me, don't sit longer than an hour. And I didn't for the next four years. (laughs) I didn't. I took his instruction, literally. Thank you. But in that hour, whatever comes up, I was willing to look at. That's really the attitude of mind we need. 
being willing to look at whatever comes up and let it go in an hour. There's a lot of ways of dealing with pain, and I'm sure you've discovered some of them and haven't and think you haven't discovered enough of them. I'm sure you've seen the dynamic where there is a hint of discomfort coming in the body and the mind says, if I don't pay attention to it, maybe it won't come. This is resistance. This is aversion. Subtle, but it's there. It's a tightening of the mind around it. Anything that gets tighter is going to get more painful. And we actually fuel the pain by not looking at it. And so the way to overcome pain, or the way to see into its nature, is to see what's actually happening, rather than trying to avoid it or hoping that it won't come. But as soon as it comes, being with it. Sayadaw used to give several suggestions for dealing with pain. And the first one was, go into the middle of it and stay there. (laughs) Of course, most of us know that the mind can't do that most of the time. It's too painful. So then he said, well, if you can't do that, then just get close to it. Get close to it for a little while, then back off. Get close to it and back off. Get close to it and back off. And he says, if that's still too painful, well, forget the pain and just go back to your primary object. So simple. So difficult. The first season, the first hot season that I was in Burma, I'd always lived in New England, never been in the tropics, never traveled to the tropics and been there. And Burma, hot season, come about the end of February, it starts getting hot up into the 80s, 90s or something. And March, April, it's up to 100 and day and night for weeks. I was miserable. I was really miserable. I was at the stage in my practice where I didn't have equanimity yet, or not enough of it, but I had pretty good mindfulness so that I could really see pain quite good. And it was so hot that I didn't wear, I was just sitting in my room, and I would only wear just something over me, so if anybody walked by they could, wouldn't see. And it was such that I could feel each bead of sweat come out of the skin, when it ha- I would wipe off, my, wipe off my arm, and I would feel each bead of sweat. It's like an ice pick sticking in you. It's unbelievable how painful sweating is. <laughs> mm. But each drop of sweat is only one moment of pain. And in that seeing of the nature of sweating, the arising of a drop of water out of the body, was real clear perception of the impermanence of phenomena. And when we can reflect, or when initially when we can reflect, but later when we can actually see the fact of impermanence of experience, 
it really is a great relief, actually, because we can know that no matter how bad it is right now, mentally or physically, it's going to be over soon. And for me, that's a really liberating, a freeing reflection. Not to indulge in it all the time, but when it really gets pretty unbearable, to just recognize that it's going to be over soon. Really helps to let the mind, let the faith in the mind come, let the energy be there to be with the experience, to observe it, knowing that it's not going to stay. Remember the pain you had earlier today? You know, the last sitting or the last walking or whatever? Where is it? Lucky it's gone. Seeing the impermanence of phenomena supports our faith, our energy, our mindfulness. When we can begin to observe quite continuously our experience, the rising and falling, the thoughts, the wandering mind, the mental states, the mind begins to steady or get collected or get focused momentarily on each of these events, these discrete arising and passing away. And when we understand, when we begin to see it clearly, when the mind gets just that concentrated, we begin to understand that what the Buddha taught, that what we are is a process of mind and body, nama rupa, once we see that for ourselves, or as we begin to see that more clearly, we can really become inspired in our practice realizing that we're on the right path, or we're going in the right direction, or that it works, or that we can do it. When the mindfulness flows uniformly to each arising object, it gets concentrated, it gets focused. That continuity of mindfulness brings the collectedness or conditions or causes the collectedness or the concentration of the mind. It's not that we have to try to get concentrated on a object or an object, but rather if we are mindful continuously, whether we think we're concentrated or not, we will get concentrated. Continuity of mindfulness is the cause for deeper concentration. Concentration is the one-pointedness of mind. Those of you who are doing metta, you might notice how concentrated and still and tranquil the mind can get on a single object. Doing Vipassana, it's a little more difficult because the objects are changing. So it's not so apparent that the mind is concentrated and single-pointed. It is, 
momentarily on the discreetly and individually arising objects. When it happens, either in metta, karuna, or in insight, when it happens that you have good practice, when the mind is continuous and there's some stability of mind, you really know the mind is still concentrated and observing precisely moment after moment, we should recognize that concentration and recognize what conditions of practice brought it about. This is one way of using what you learn about your own practice to enhance your practice in difficult times. It's called apprehending the sign of concentration. It's recognizing those conditions that allow you to have good practice. If it's so many hours of sleep or such and such a type of walking before sitting, remember that and do that when you need to develop concentration. It doesn't always work. You can't predict what's going to happen. But there is some recognition of what conduces to better practice and what doesn't. And we need to learn from our own experience what it is that works. When the mind is concentrated, when the mind falls on, the ability to observe it falls on the objects continuously, and the mind gets really still and concentrated, we can see into the nature of each object or each of our experiences more precisely, more carefully, more deeply. We get more knowledge about what it is we're actually observing. Concentration is the cause for the arising of wisdom, the fifth controlling faculty. Concentration is like putting a lens on the mind so that we can see things more clearly. It's not that we see new things or see things that didn't exist before, but we see what has always existed more closely. I've mentioned the five faculties that we're developing here. The first being faith, confidence, being the cause for making effort or being the cause for arousing the energy of practice. Effort in its turn, in energy, precision, carefulness of practice, is the cause for the ability to observe carefully, mindfulness. Mindfulness, when it's continuous, precise, energized, is the cause for the concentrating or concentration of the mind. Concentration, when, it, when the mind is concentrated and focuses on an object, sees more deeply into its nature, 
This is the arising of wisdom. We can see that there is the cause-effect relationship of all of these five faculties. But what's interesting is that when we get more understanding, more faith, more wisdom, when we can verify for ourselves that what the Buddha taught or what the teachers are saying actually is true and that we can do it, we can, we can see the nature of mind and body. When we can see that, when we can have that much wisdom, it gives us more confidence in what we're doing. More confidence, in turn, inspires, is the condition for more energy, more effort. With that greater effort, greater continuity, greater precision and care of practice, you can see more, you can observe more clearly, more mindfulness, more mindfulness, more continuity of mindfulness leads to greater concentration, more concentration is more wisdom. It's a cyclic development of these five faculties of mind. When the wisdom becomes strong, or when wisdom arises, one's faith really becomes quite stable, quite, quite a firm conviction because it's based on your personal experience, your own knowledge. And so it's important to recognize the reciprocal relationship between faith, mindfulness, and wisdom. They support each other, and as one is developed, the others will be developed. In this cyclic development, the faculties that I'm talking about go through many stages. Eventually they can come to maturity where they become the most powerful influence on your experience. But they have a habit of getting out of balance So that if, for example, we have too much faith, if faith is out of balance and we have too much, we may not be able to make the effort. Mindfulness won't be able to land on the object. Concentration won't be focused. And wisdom won't be very clear. So we need to balance faith with wisdom. If faith is too high and our wisdom or understanding is too low, what we get is a kind of a blind faith or unwarranted devotion to something. A lot of faith, no wisdom. Sometimes we can be very uncritical of what it is we have faith in. When faith is too low and wisdom or understanding is too high, the Buddha said of this condition, and in fact it's a condition that many of us have, we have a lot of understanding, we've read a lot of Dharma books, we have a lot of understanding at one level. We have book wisdom. 
it's if it's in balance with our actual faith, the intuitive faith, not the faith of knowledge, if it's unbalanced, the Buddha said that such a condition is as hard to cure as a disease caused by the medicine to cure it. That means you're taking medicine to cure something, but it's actually causing it. That type of book wisdom, book knowledge, that we use to cure our (laughs) dharma illness, without faith, actually contributes to continued dharma illness. The way to bring them into balance is with mindfulness. When a faith is balanced with wisdom, we can have confidence but it's grounded. It's based on our personal experience. It's tested in our own practice. Faith and wisdom need to be balanced. Concentration and energy need to be balanced. If there's a lot of concentration, not much energy, things are really calm, still, and close to sleep. We really slip into a real idleness of mind where it can seem like we're really with our meditation object for a while. And then we lose it. We black out, we go unconscious, we have some gaps of some sort really due to lack of energy, over-concentration, loss of consciousness. It's a very pleasant state, because it's so calm, so tranquil, but it's not very clear. On the other hand, if we don't have much concentration, we have a lot of energy, we're just agitated. The mind can't land on the object. We have too many objects floating around. We need to limit the number of objects we're observing then to allow the mind to become tranquil on one or two objects rather than scattered on many. When concentration and energy are in balance, the mind can become single-pointed and absorbed in momentarily arising objects. Mindfulness can't be in excess. We never have enough. It's the balancing factor of all the others. If you're carefully observing arising objects, energy and concentration will be in balance. Faith and wisdom will come into balance. And this is one of the ways of developing and maturing these faculties is by balancing all of the factors of enlightenment, not just these, but all of the factors of enlightenment, so that when we're too tranquil, we develop the arousing factors of mind, joy, investigation. When we're too restless, too much energy, too much joy, to develop, to reflect on, and to develop the tranquility, the concentration, the equanimity. 
to remember the factors of enlightenment, to recognize what is absent in your practice at any time. As these factors become mature, they begin to have a very strong and controlling influence on the mind. The momentum gets really built up. And when they reach a level of maturity, not a peak, but a level of maturity, the faith or the confidence is unshakable. Just won't it just no doubt comes to the mind in knowing what it is you're doing and how to do it. And there's a real confidence because you know what it is you're doing and that you can do it. The energy at that time fears nothing, never turns away from any experience. In fact, such energy delights in any object, difficult or not. Mindfulness, as I mentioned this morning or sometime recently, when the mindfulness really gets momentum and develop, when you observe just the primary object or just any other single object, you can know many things. Many things about that object, many things about other parts of the body or other things going on in the mind. The mindfulness becomes so sharp that it sees everything. The concentration is unwavering, undistracted. In insight, practicing Vipassana, we should understand that because there is a lot of objects or a rapid flow of objects, doesn't mean that we're restless, doesn't mean that we're not concentrated, because we can see them each momentarily quite clearly. Doing doing metta or doing karuna, yes, the mind gets really still and stays still. Very obvious, but not so in Vipassana. In Vipassana, when the wisdom becomes mature, or when wisdom becomes developed, then we can have a very clear understanding of what it is we're observing. It's not hazy, it's not unclear. We know precisely what the nature of our experience is. All of these factors that I've mentioned are necessary for maturing of practice. In fact, they're the result of mature practice. But in a strange way, they all can become hindrances to practice. We can have too much faith We can have too much energy, we can have too much concentration or too much wisdom. I didn't say we could have too much mindfulness. And it's really a tricky place in practice when we're making the effort that we really think is right effort, but it's really striving. Well, we have a lot of faith and we're just... We know the Dhamma is it, and we know that we're doing it. We can get a little guga, a little blissed out, stop practice. 
or we can get so much concentration, so tranquil, so calm, so focused, it actually hinders practice. And this is the last of the nine ways to bring these factors to maturity is to not be satisfied with any experience. Don't stop here. Got some good calm, good concentration, great. Let go of it. Got a lot of energy, really making diligent effort, good. Let go of that. Don't stop and rest on this experience. It's not the end. Not stopping in the middle anywhere, but realizing that it's just a passing experience. Let go of it. Joseph asked me if I would give a talk on these factors and how to balance them. I think he asked me to do it because the last time he gave it, he got so many notes of complaint that he didn't, I guess he didn't want to get it. It should be understood that these are reminders of how to work with your practice, not parameters of self-judgment. So really take these suggestions and this understanding what you heard tonight, as tools for refining your practice in these remaining weeks of the retreat. Understand that there's a lot of momentum already developing these factors, and that they just need minor adjustments at this point to keep going. But recognize the adjustment that's needed, and make it. I guess that's all I have to say. Let's sit for a while. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.